Welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast, a podcast about resilience. I'm your host, Buddy Owen. Sing When You're Losing is produced by Future Proof Sports Consulting. Future Proof is here to support athletes, teams, and clubs in a variety of ways to maximize performance and ensure that when it's time to hang up your boots, you're ready for whatever is next. Whoever you are, it's never too soon to start preparing for the future. You can find us online at www.future-proofsc.com. On this podcast, we interview athletes, coaches, managers, referees, and others who are involved in sport. We listen to their stories of the good and the bad times, and we focus in on what the difficult times taught them. We believe that we should celebrate the good times and keep singing in the bad, as that is usually when we learn the most. So, whatever you're going through, the highs and the lows, always remember to sing when you're losing. In today's episode, we get to hear from David and Casey Hoffer. They are both former Division I competitive divers, David at Arizona State University and Casey at Boise State University. David is still a competitive diver and has qualified for the Team USA Olympic qualifiers that were delayed for a year due to COVID. Casey has retired from diving since graduating from university and now works to help other high-performing athletes prepare for the transition out of competition and into normal life. David and Casey offer us a glimpse into their crazy world of competition, training, full-time jobs, disappointment, injuries, and being newlyweds. So now, wherever you are, I hope that you're able to relax and listen to this great conversation with David and Casey, and that in some way their experience will help you learn to sing when you're losing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. Hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Andy Molesdale from North Wales Crusaders. If you haven't listened to that one yet, do jump back and listen to that. Uh, he's a great guy doing a great job with this small rugby league team in North Wales. Today, uh, we're a few thousand miles away. Uh, we're not in Wales. Uh, we are with uh, Sing When You're Losing First, uh, a husband and wife uh, couple in Arizona. Uh, so I would like to introduce all of you listening to Casey and David Hoffer, based in Arizona. Where exactly in Arizona are you guys? We're in Tempe. Tempe, Arizona. So all of you Brits listening, um, no, that's nowhere near New York. Uh, and uh, it's not really anywhere near Canada either, nor is it anywhere near Florida. Uh, I'll let Casey and David explain to you exactly where Arizona is because most of you won't know. Where is it, guys? We are right on the border of Mexico, and it's about a five-hour drive from Los Angeles. That's about the best I can describe it. There you go. Most of the people from the UK listening to this will know where LA is, uh, so so that's good. About five-hour drive to LA, which is... Um, over half the length of this country uh, if oh, you were to <laughs> drive from bottom to top so um very good now casey and david um i, I really want to start with how did you guys meet where where and when did you guys meet 
Yeah. Um, that's always the first question people ask because it's a really, really weird story because I am from Arizona. I was born and raised, I grew up here and I took a scholarship at Boise State in Idaho, which is near Canada. Um, and David, you know, is from Colorado and took a scholarship at Arizona State University. So he came to my hometown and we actually met at a dive meet in Colorado. And so that was what, five years ago? Yeah. Just over. Yeah. Yeah. And so we trained together during the summers and hit it off and went long distance. And so then when I graduated and I left the NCAA, it was okay, where are we going to live? If this is real, are we going to make decisions together? And so that was a unanimous yes. And so I moved back to Phoenix and we started our life together. Okay, now it makes sense. So um, just backtracking now for everyone listening, what Casey and David have in common, uh, and I've never actually met anyone who does this sort of professionally at all, been around sports all my life, never known anyone who does this, but they are both divers, uh, not deep sea divers. Uh, they are the crazy people who jump from height uh, into water. And they're both really good at it. Uh, I, I've, I've done a little bit of research and they are both really good at it. Um, and no offense, Casey, but David seems to be really, really good at oh, it. Totally good. I've been retired for three and a half years. I don't step on a board unless it's to show a kid what to do. You're, you're divers. Now, I think um, I, I love sports, any kind of sport. I, in my head, divers are a certain kind of crazy. It's, you know, I, I remember growing up as a kid and, you know, this was back when health and safety wasn't what it is now. And you could go to public swimming pools. I can remember living in Kansas and going to a public swimming pool and there was like a one meter board and they even had a three meter and they had a platform at a public swimming pool. Right. And um, yeah, it was crazy. I dive off, you know, off the one meter, I jump off the three meter and then I got up onto the platform, I think once. I mean, I've, I've done bungee jumping now. I've done all sorts of things, but still jumping off a platform uh, just seems crazy. How do you decide that of all the things in the world you're going to be the best at, diving is the one? Talk me through that, uh, either of you, both of you. I'll let you take that yeah. one because you were the platform diver. I was a springboard specialist. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of one of those things that it, it just develops as you're in the sport. Like you, I, I feel like you can watch someone in American football get just completely destroyed getting tackled and feel like there's no way like I would ever do that. But it's like, they started off in peewee where they're, you know, bumping into each other and like knocking each other over, right? So like kind of develops from that, I think. Um, and it's the same type of thing with diving. Like we didn't start by going up and jumping off 10 meters. Like, oh, maybe, maybe that's where I messed up. I thought that would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was one of my requirements. The club team that I was on during my tryout, I had to jump off at least five and seven to prove that I wasn't afraid of. Well, mm -hmm. Growing up in Colorado, there was only one <laughs> platform around. Um, okay. So I didn't start platform until I was in college. And I didn't go, I didn't start like diving off 10 meter until sophomore year of college. Because I told my coach I didn't want to do it. Fair enough. Yeah. Other <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, 
it's just one of those things that as you're in the sport, it, it's just one of those muscles that you work up to. And eventually it's not as scary as if you were to just jump straight into it. It still still seems pretty scary. Now, um, I David, I don't know about you, Casey, but um, if I'm not mistaken, David, you did gymnastics as well. Is that right? Yeah. So I prior to being a diver, I actually was a swimmer and a gymnast at the same time for close to ten years on each of them. I quit gymnastics um, just before freshman year of high school, and that's when I started diving. Uh, it's just you know. It was over the summer and I guess one sport wasn't enough to fill my time. So I had to try to keep two. Um, so then I swam and dove for about two years and then I decided swimming was boring and diving was more fun. So I was gonna stick with that. <laughs> I would agree with that. So the gymnastics, uh, do you think that was really helpful for you then when it came yeah, to diving? Yeah, I, I personally like think gymnastics is one of the best sports you can get into as a kid like it teaches you body awareness it teaches you you know how to work around kind of obstacles whether that's you know parallel bars or you know a vault that's not moving and you're sprinting towards it at full speed um and it also teaches you just like how to fall mm -hmm. and, like that's yeah. not something a lot of people think of as a skill mm -hmm. but i can guarantee you there are numerous numerous times outside of diving where if I didn't know how to fall, I definitely would have gotten far more hurt than if I hadn't been a gymnast, so. Sure, yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right with gymnastics. Um, my younger daughter does gymnastics and I, I love it. I think it, it is, it's a great foundation uh, for so many other things. What about you, Casey? How did you progress into diving? Yeah, so I took a little bit similar approach. I never swam, but I was real, real little when I started gymnastics. My sister was near elite gymnast, and my mom was like, I cannot have another kid go through these types of injuries. Like, she refused to let that happen again. So I moved into all-star cheerleading, which is where I learned a lot of my body awareness and being a flyer because I was, you know, real tiny. I didn't weigh more than 60 pounds when I was a kid. And, so it was real easy to get into being a flyer. So that allowed me to transition into diving when I was about nine and it really helped with the body awareness. I was able to twist and I was able to flip. And so I really was able to pick up diving really well. And I only wanted to quit. I remember once in high school because I wanted to, you know, have a social life and do other things. And my mom was like, but you love diving. So it was like, all right, I'll just keep going. And then, you know, it kind of went into, am I gonna go to college? And so, I mean, I did, I was a diver for about 12 years until I, I finally retired. You uh, just also, uh, there, there's a lot of translation for my British audience that I'll need to do on some of the terms that we're using. Um, but uh, David, you, you were an athlete, obviously, but am I right that you were also class valedictorian? <laughs> um yeah so the high school i ended up going to was tiny like i think my graduating class was like 40 and of that 40 like 25 actually graduated that year um hey my graduating class was 13 and i wasn't valedictorian oh, wow. so. 
Mine was 600, so I'm very different realm. Yeah. You've, you've done quite well academically at university as well, I think. Um, yeah. yeah. So tell us. Successful. Yeah. Yeah. So, Only one um, concussion <laughs> in diving. No, that's not true. I've had at least three. Okay. Well, you got one, what, sophomore year or junior year? No, sophomore year. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. It, it still happens in diving. <laughs> the water's harder than people think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's why I don't want to get up there and do that. I'll jump <laughs> with a rubber band attached to me because the I won't. Is. But uh, um, we'll we might come back to the, the whole college bit um, just in terms of how that helps prepare you for life after sports, potentially, whereas people who don't necessarily follow that route or take advantage of it end up not prepared uh, when it comes time to stop. But there's there's a lot of stuff to get through before that. Just by way of translation, um, Casey and David went to university in the States uh, and uh, competed at a division one level, uh, which means that's the highest university level that you can compete at in the States. Uh, in other words, it's, it's very good. It's not an easy thing to do. So they both competed at that level at different universities while also getting an education. Just uh, tell me what it's like trying to balance your school, so doing well at your academics, while also trying to prepare to compete at a division one level. Either of you go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, in my experience, I had less college credits when I walked into college than he did. I was actually on academic probation in my first day of college from grades that transferred from high school because I also did dual enrollment classes. And so I was kind of already seen as kind of a problem on the team because I hurt the GPA. You know, I was a freshman, so I wasn't as good as everyone else. I was on a little bit of scholarship, so I had to prove myself. And so that first year was a, a really big struggle. And I didn't have as many classes because I knew that I was transitioning into college. And so I didn't take as many courses. But the idea of balancing your time as an athlete is very difficult because one, other people are making decisions for you. Other people are telling you what your schedule is, when you can't have classes, when you can have classes, when you can study, when you're obligated to do volunteer work or be prepared to travel and, you know, funk, work with professors on tests. I remember uh, my first anatomy and physiology test I had to take in Texas at conference because she wouldn't open it any other time. So we had to plan in between practices on the day off that divers had in conference to go take my A&P test, which was just incredibly stressful and trying to balance all my other schoolwork. So it, it takes a lot of grace to learn that time management and acknowledge what that means to be an athlete, how to adjust to somebody else giving you your schedule, finding time to, you know, spend time with family, spend time with friends, do homework, get enough sleep. It's a lot. And now that I'm out of it, you know, my time is much more free and it's good because I get to control my time. I get to, you know, decide what's most important to get my time to, but it's also 
I don't know what to give my time to. There's so much that I could give my time to and nobody's giving me direction to do it. Um, so it, it has its benefits and its disadvantages as you're learning to navigate being an athlete. Anything you want to add? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like had the opposite experience. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, you had a little bit different coach than I did. <laughs> there's that too. I mean, so when I came in, I was just like on cloud nine because I was just so happy to be there and so excited for everything that was going to happen. It's like, you know, finally, you know, out of the parents' house and free <laughs> and like do whatever I want now and all this. Um, and I, I for, for a little background on diving, it is pretty typical for someone, you know, coming into university to have seven to 10 to even 15 years experience. Um, so me coming in to, you know, one of the most premier diving uh, colleges that at the time, yeah, at yeah. the time, uh, with four years experience and only like two years of actual like club experience rather than like high school diving. Um, I was just super excited to be here. Uh, so <laughs> then everything else that came with it, it was just kind of like, okay, so this is what it is. This is what life is. All right, cool. I can do this. So I, I don't know. I just kind of rolled with those punches. So you so, enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's not to say like there weren't the struggles, like my freshman year qualified for the national championships, uh, on one meter and three meter and had a macro econ test where the professor was kind of being a stickler and said I had to take the test as close to the same time as the rest of the class. So I had to wake up early the day that I was competing one meter at NCAAs and eat breakfast at the hotel and go and take a macro econ test before going and competing. Um, so like obviously things like that still happened and you yeah. know, the time management wasn't easy, but it, I, I think a lot of it was just going in with kind of a different mindset and different outlook. Sure. I guess it also kept you distracted though. You didn't have much time to worry about diving later that day, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't end up going that well that year, but that's okay. <laughs> One meter's not my forte. <laughs> oh, um, so yeah, the difficulty of balancing is, it's true. Yeah, I can vouch for that as well. When you're wanting to play your sport uh, and you know, what. I wasn't necessarily over keen on the academic side personally. I knew I needed to do it and I could do it. It's not just where I wanted to spend my time. I wanted to spend my time playing my sport, but you've both done it. Was it worth it? Was trying to find that balance and the hard work that you had to put in over those four years. Do you think that was worth it? Are you glad you tried to get that balance? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I posted the other day, I, it was signing week this, this past week or two for the next class, um, for 2021, 22. Probably explain what signing week is. <laughs> Probably. So in the NCAA, there's two weeks out of the year. There's one in November and one in February that you can sign your national letter of intent saying which university you were going to go to, which university was offering you a scholarship and you were making that commitment to go there for at least a year and they would allow you to go there for at least a year. 
Um, so I had a memory on Facebook that came up that seven years ago on, I think it was November 13th, I signed my national letter of intent for Boise State. And so I shared that and I really asked myself the question, you know, if I could go back and tell my 17 year old self what was going to happen in the three years that I was an NCAA diver, I lost my coach, the coach who replaced was not a compassionate coach. Um, he emotional abuse, training abuse, verbal abuse. I signed away a year of eligibility. I went into depression, anxiety. I met my husband. You know, we built this beautiful life together. And now I'm writing this book and helping other athletes transition out, you know, asking the question, would I have made a different decision? Absolutely not. Because the positives and the negatives, everything that I've learned, the people that I've interacted with, both positive and negative have impacted what I'm able to do now and how I'm able to impact athletes and coaches. And hopefully the NCAA, we get some reform in it. You know, that has become my true passion in life. And it had to come from all those positive and negative experiences. Yeah, absolutely. David? Yeah, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for almost anything, I don't think. Um, it, it it allowed me to get two degrees. I am now, you know, qualified for Olympic trials, allowed me to get a master's. Um, and I mean, yeah, let him, let him focus on the positives. I went in chronological order. Um, but yeah. And, and again, like, one of my teammates, he was one of my groomsmen at the wedding. So like the, the people are amazing too. And actually like diving community in particular is such a close knit community. Like pretty much any diver can reach out to anyone who is or was a diver kind of at this level. And like, they'll be able to chat. Like mm -hmm. they'll, they'll be okay. It's because you're they'll all be crazy to someone. Huh? Yeah. yeah, it's because you're all crazy. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> but they'll be there for you, like because diving specifically is is not a well recognized sport. It doesn't get as much credibility. It doesn't get as much TV time. It doesn't get the attention that say swimming does. So divers become very very close knit. They support each other. Like all of the programs that are being cut this year because of Corona and financial issues. Like we reach out to those divers, we reach out to them and say, Hey, I'm here for you. I know that this is hard. Yeah. And I, I don't think that camaraderie is something that you can really get anywhere else. And I would also say without the extra structure of athletics, I don't think I'd be, I would have been nearly as successful in academics because I'm the person that if I have too much free time, I don't do anything. So, <laughs> um, don't do anything or don't do anything constructive. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So having the extra time constraints forced me to like stay focused on what was important and get the things done that needed to get done. Um, so I, I don't think I would have been nearly as successful in any of my endeavors if it weren't for college athletics. That's really interesting. I think also I know, you know, with athletes I work with, the, the thing that I find difficult is you'll hear them say, well, I just don't have time to do anything else i'm you know the the system here is very different college system well there isn't one in terms of helping to develop athletes they are if they're um, particularly football soccer football uh, they go through an academy structure where that's all they do 
there might be some schooling with it, but the schooling is by no means a pri- by no means a priority. The football is, uh, and so then when they finish their uh, academy schooling, their academy college, whatever it is, the, the, rarely if they stay on to be a professional footballer do they do any further education. Uh, and you hear, well, I just don't have time, or they, they just don't make it a priority, and. I think, you know, I think you, you can make the time. Some do, but not many. But I think, you know, the, the Division One athletics, it helps you realize you can make the time. It's not easy. And that's the key, isn't it? It's not easy, but it is doable, right? You just have to make it a priority. You've mentioned a couple of things in there that we want to draw out. Uh, one of those that you just kind of threw in, David, just in passing, no big deal. Uh, you've qualified for Olympic trials. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. So explain to us exactly what that means. So it means I get to go and compete at the competition that could potentially qualify me for the Olympics. And when is that? Uh, so it's in June. In June? Yeah. I think you can just start with the meet that you got your Olympic score with, because that shows amazing, absolutely seeing when you're losing resilience level. So I think you need to tell that story. There you go. You've been told. <laughs> so pretty much every college in the U.S. has like a rival college. Um, and they usually save that meet or competition or whatever for kind of the last one uh, before the championships. Uh, so we were a week out from our grudge dual meet against University of Arizona. I go to Arizona State, went to Arizona State. Um, and I'm training and, you know, it, it had been just a killer season for me. Um, I had been doing incredibly on both one meter and three meter um, at the mid-season tournament we went to. I almost beat a national team member on platform, uh, which was, you know, while I was decent at it, was not my specialty because uh, I did two dives on seven meter, which uh, if you're in the seniors or like the, the professional like kind of club thing. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, you can only do 10 meter. Uh, so I was kind of like a step down, I guess. I don't know how to do it. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I was training and was doing a dive and caught some wind and it pushed me just enough to the side of the board that when I pushed to do, to start my dive, um, my left foot slipped off the end of the board or the side of the board at the bottom of the press. So the board is basically like touching the water and one of my feet slips off. And so the board rebounds and I end up tearing a meniscus, uh, slicing the bottom of my foot, taking off a couple toenails, um, all that. Um, Season ending injury. Yeah, so um, end up- gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so got to sit on the side of the pool for about 20 minutes until the trainer came. Uh, lifeguard didn't do much. Uh, and so went, cleaned up my foot. Um, I'm sitting in the 
doctor's office while they're stitching my foot and like I don't care about my foot my foot's fine like it'll be fine like ignore that my knee is bothering me like something's wrong with my knee like we have to stop the bleeding like we have to take care of your foot first come on so they take care of my foot um and do some diagnostics on my knee and they're like um maybe MCL like not sure we're gonna give you this brace and we're gonna get you an MRI uh, so I think I got an MRI that same night or maybe the next. Yeah, it was like three hours later. Yeah, it was, that, it was that same night because yeah. that was a Friday. Which is so great about being an athlete because you do yeah. get that that priority. So yeah, uh, I got an MRI that night. I'm hanging out, watching practice the next day on a Saturday. And my coach calls me into his office. And so I crutch over into his office. And he tells me the diagnostics came back and I tore my meniscus. So it required surgery. We're a week out from the dual meet um, against you know, our rival school. Uh, I think we were two or three weeks out from our Pac-12, our conference championships, uh, which I, my goal for that was to win both one meter and three meter. So um, just, just hold up there for a second. This is your senior year? Junior. Junior year. Okay. Yep. And it's coming towards the end of the season. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that you've been looking forward to for years, the yep. possibility of this. Yeah. So how did you yep. feel at that particular time when he says it's going to require surgery? What, what, what were your thoughts and feelings then? I was just crushed. Um, cause it had been such a good season. Like it, it was one of those seasons where going into the championships, like I knew I was just going to do incredibly. Um, so like, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to win at least one board at pack 12, whether that was one meter, three meter platform. Um, so yeah, I was just absolutely crushed. Uh, and I, I didn't know if I was going to be able to recover or well, I was kind of being told I wouldn't be able to recover in time to compete for the national qualifier to go to the national championships. Um, so yeah, like I was basically being told the season was done. So after having such an incredible season, like I was just crushed. Um, so I talked to the doctor and he says that they can either like try to stitch the meniscus back together, which would be like a six month recovery, or they can just take out like half my meniscus. Cause I guess it was a, like, it was a pretty bad tear. Mm. Um, so I'm like, you know what? Like he, he, the doctor kind of said that there weren't long-term um, issues with kind of taking out a decent chunk of the meniscus. Like as long as you keep, the muscles around the knee strong, like it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, and at this point, this is my third knee surgery that I have had. <laughs> um, so it's like, you know what, whatever. So I told him, I, I don't really associate knee problems with diving. Is that, is that common or was this something that you just struggled with? I, I don't entirely know. Um, it's not that common. Yeah. You see you, more back injuries and more shoulder injuries mm -hmm. in diving. Yeah. So I don't know if it was like, leftover stuff from gymnastics or yeah, yeah. what but um yeah so I, I told the doctor just cut out half the meniscus like i'll recover and i'll try to compete um 
I had the amazing experience. My coach said, do what's best for you. Like, it's okay. It's okay if your season's done. No worries. It's more important for you to be healthy. Um, so I, I, I owe a lot to my coach. He was incredible. But I decided I still wanted to try to compete. So I told them, cut out the meniscus. So they cut out half the meniscus. And five weeks later, I end up going and competing at the national qualifier for NCAAs. So tell that five weeks, what did you miss in that five weeks then competition wise? Uh, I missed the dual meet with our rival school and I missed the Pac-12 championships. Um, and again, that, that part was really crushing because I was sitting at home watching the results mm -hmm. uh, while my, my brand new teammate from Egypt who hadn't even been there, you know, a full semester at that point was competing at NCAA or not NCAA, at Pac-12s, the conference meet, and finaling. I don't remember if he, he did win. I think he I won. Think he did. He won at yeah. one meter, if I remember correctly. Um, so I'm sitting watching that like, man, I, I could have won that. Like I could have been there. And, you know. So then five weeks later, I end up competing. One meter was first. Um, which for anyone who doesn't know, one meter is not an Olympic competition in diving. It's only mm -hmm. three meter in platform. Um, but I end up qualifying five weeks out of knee surgery, basically no uh, practice in that amount of time, aside from if any divers are listening lineups, uh, which is just like falling into the water and making practicing injuries. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Which was probably good for you, keeping your legs straight. <laughs> yeah well and that was another is like i didn't have the quad muscles anymore so, <laughs> so i qualified on one meter and woke up the next day and like could barely walk so and our, we didn't have an athletic trainer with us either at that competition uh so i had to work with the it was northern arizona university i had to work with their trainer um, and I guess there were issues with like what he was allowed to do. Um, cause I was wanting like ice and stem and kinesio tape and like stuff like that. Like I kind of, I knew the regimen at that point. It was like, this is what I need. Uh, and he was like, I can't do that. Like I need a release from your trainer. So I had to like call my trainer and be like, I need you to set up a release and send it over like ASAP. Like I compete in like two hours. And I haven't warmed up. And then my first jump on the board, I like buckled, like my knee just couldn't take it. So <laughs> I had to jump off. My coach is like, he was about to just throw his phone. I'd be like, no, I'm like, okay, like I'll warm up my knee some more. Like, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Um, so I end up competing and I get to my last dive in prelims and uh, like, I get out of the water and my coach is like, you're not going to make that dive. Like we have to do a different dive. Um, so he's like, these are the dives you can do. I'm like, if I'm going to do, if I'm going to switch my dive, like I'm going to make it as easy on my leg as possible. So I ended up doing a dive that I hadn't trained or competed in like six years. And then, yeah. So went through all that, came back. Um, I think I was in like 12th or something and I needed to be, I think I needed to be top. You just need to be top 12 at that point because you yeah. qualified on one meter. Yeah, yeah. So I just needed to be top 12. So I just had to maintain my spot. 
uh, and then I came back in finals, which was literally like back to back. So you, you compete one list, you get like 15 minutes to warm up again, and then you compete again, the exact same list. Um, and in that second list, I ended up doing better. Even with that dive, I hadn't competed in six years. And it's actually wow. that second list, which qualified me for Olympic trials five weeks out of knee surgery. Wow, that is amazing. And I guess completely unexpected. Yeah, like what, yeah. What, going into the day, what were your hopes? I had none. <laughs> Survive? I, yeah, like I woke up and it was like, I can barely walk. Yeah. We'll see what happens today. Like I've already qualified for NCAAs on one meter. Whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to try to have a good time. Um, <laughs> I, and like looking back, that meet is actually one of the most fondest memories I have. Oh, I Because there were no expectations. Like it was all kind of a joke to me. So that qualified you for nationals? Yeah. So I qualified for uh, the national collegiate championships. Uh, as well as Olympic trials with the, the second list on three meter. Wow. So, um, and then when were the nationals? How, how much later, uh, the NCAAs, when were those? Yeah, like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> how did that go? Yes. Uh, they didn't go that well. <laughs> <laughs> um, after not competing for five weeks or not training for five weeks um, and <laughs> uh then jumping into it my legs were kind of shot and i yeah. couldn't get my my knee to recover well enough after that yeah uh, and then it was a different mental game too once you get to the the national championships so i i felt the pressure there sure. and couldn't relax and just kind of let things happen in the same way so. and then how long was that meant to be between qualifying for trials, Olympic trials, and for the qualifying for the trials and actually doing the qualifiers? What was meant to be the length of time there then? For me, that would have been like three years. Three years, um, okay. The, the way it works for diving is there's a score that you have to meet and there's a specific meet or set of meets that you have to make that score at. So for me, it was three years. Somebody else could have done it a year or two later at the exact same meet that I was at and still qualified. Um, so it, it kind of depends person to person on that. Okay. So um, now, it, am I right that you were meant to be qualifying for the 2020 Olympics? Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So when... When were you meant to qualify for those then? When, when were the nationals meant to be for that? Well, like what uh, month? Was that June last year that you were meant to be? Oh, oh because, yes. So Olympic, Olympic trials was supposed yeah. to be June 2020. Yeah. June 2020. Uh, and you'd spent the last three years preparing? Yeah, kind of more trials? too. Because uh, yeah. I, I, there's something called redshirting. In collegiate athletics yeah uh where you're still like on the team and you get your scholarship and still get to train with the team and all that uh but you don't compete so i took a redshirt year after my knee surgery and then competed another year uh or competed the following year rather uh and then i trained for one more year after that and was going to compete in Olympic trials after that so. so when did you find out then that the trials were canceled 
and the Olympics were canceled. But I think that March, was that March was March because it was around the same time that we postponed our wedding. Yeah, it was March or April. Yeah. So how was that? You know, well, you've, you've been hoping for this for years. You've come back from surgery. You've trained really hard. And then no Olympics. Um, it was it was a bit of a spiral um, because, I mean, everything was being canceled at that point, including having to postpone our wedding. Um, and I'd already set up uh, to start my my career, my full time job in uh, July. So I had no idea if or how I would be able to train or be able to train going forward and all that. Uh, and then it was all kind of compounded a month later uh, when my team was informed that my coach was let go and that they wouldn't be hiring another coach for this for the season. Um, so then that kind of took the front seat of, well, now I really don't know what to do. So, yeah. So you, um, you found out in March trials were canceled. The Olympics were canceled. Uh, you needed to start your full-time job. Um, and you needed to then continue to train for an extra year <laughs> on top of what you had planned. How are you doing that? How are you, how are you coping with that now? I, the, the Olympics, uh, Casey and I talked about this a few weeks ago. I think for Olympians, uh, it, it's a special type of mindset. And, and I feel that often they are transitioning. Well, the resilience, you, you know, you really for, mo for a lot of Olympic sports that aren't professional, uh, you, you've got four years, you know, you, 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 you do it for what you do it once. Often it's just one Olympics. Maybe you get two, if you're really, really good in a particular sport, you might get three, but they're four years apart. Um, so that, you know, you're preparing yourself to compete in that Olympics. Uh, it gets canceled. You're not sure when you're going to get to compete again. You don't know how you're going to train. What all, what's going through your head with all that? Uh, do you mean right now or like back then? Well, now as well. Yeah, because you're still going through it, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, so at this point, I've managed to, to find a club team that I can train with. Um, the coach there was like a runner up in, I think, the 1980 Olympics, Olympic trials. Um, so like he, he's a good coach. Uh, so obviously, like my training is very pared back. Like I'm not I'm not in the water four hours a day like I used to be. Now it's, you know, maybe 12 hours a week. Um, so obviously like that kind of takes a different training mindset with that. Um, but yeah. Do you feel confident with that? Um, I, I personally am someone who like when I want to do something, it's put everything towards it. Um, so not getting to train as much and, you know, having some, having to deal with kind of weather is one thing because it's later at night. So I have to deal with cold a little bit more because uh, it's still outside. Uh, it, it's a struggle. Uh, I, I would really like to be able to train more. I don't know if my body could really handle 
training a whole lot more uh, with working full time and doing all that. Um, so it, it, when, it's a struggle trying to find that balance. Sure. And then uh, hopefully trials next June. In the build up to that, will you do you think you'll be able to then, you know, say for April, you know, spend the next two or three months training more? Is that do you have a plan to kind of do that to like a boxer? Boxers train very little and then six weeks before a fight, they lose 20 pounds and they muscle up and they, you know, they really focus in. Do you have any plans for that? Uh, not really. In diving, at least uh, the way I've done it or my coach has set things up in the past, it's actually kind of the opposite. So uh, the usual season was like October through March. And so kind of the, the Christmas break time uh, and kind of through about maybe halfway through January would be the biggest kind of ramp up with the most number of dives and like kind of working the hardest. And then it slows down after that, focusing more on quality over quantity. Um, I don't quite have a plan for that just yet, uh, partially because when I would be doing that is also when it's kind of expected to pick up at work. So uh, I'll be navigating those two things at the same time. And I guess this is another, again, with Olympics, you know, it's for most Olympians, it's not a full-time job, is it? You know, for, for things like diving, it's once every four years. And so, you know, you, in the meantime, you've got to find a way to, to make a living. And that, that just takes a whole different mindset, doesn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Casey, what, what do you, how do you feel that David has coped with all of that? And what was that like kind of for you in supporting him through the disappointment of the trials not happening and now, obviously he's having to work a full-time job and not able to necessarily train he wants to. What's that like for you going through that with him? Yeah. I mean, we've been together since freshman year of college. So we've really seen all the ups and downs of each other's diving careers. I mean, I was competing at a meet in air at air force Academy when he calls me that he's left off the board and he's getting an MRI. And I was in the middle of a competition and he's like, oh, like, I don't, I don't want to tell you about it. Like, we'll talk about it later. And I'm like, no, we're going to talk about it now because there's something going on. Well, yeah. She actually had my day. <laughs> oh, and right. he was like, we'll talk about it later. And I'm like, that, no. <laughs> um, so yeah, like we've seen all the ups and downs of each other's careers and we've been able to really lean on each other. I mean, when I left the NCAA, like he was my rock, my stability that I could just like crumble and it would be okay and so you know him going through all of this this year and i know that it's hurting him i know that it's a huge struggle for him and the best thing i can do is say i'm here for you what can i do how can i support you and so with my background being kinesiology and strength training you know i'm able to fill that piece of you know him not having a weight coach anymore he doesn't have those resources from the university anymore so i'm kind of able to fill that piece as well and say, okay, this is, at least I know diving so that I can help, you know, with the strength training piece and we can fill that and make sure that, you know, we're going to the gym consistently. And even if you weren't in the water consistently, we can still keep you strong and healthy. So it's, it's kind of a partnership still with that support piece, you know, when the trials were postponed, 
it was, okay, what do you want to do? Sit in these feelings for a little bit, feel what this feels like. Like this is, this is huge. A lot of people were celebrating the Olympics being postponed, not realizing that this is really devastating to every single athlete who had their, their sights set on this. Um, so being able to let him sit in those feelings and say, okay, what do you need to do? What do you want to do? And like he said, that first time he kind of got things sorted out with this coach. And then a month later, the university fires his coach, cuts his team. And he goes, okay, now that whole plan is gone. And we have to rework that and sit in those feelings again and decide, you know, is this what I want to do? What I want to put my time to, what I want to put my effort to. And once he said, yes, it was like, okay, how? And so it's, it's a struggle, but when you grow up in that athletic mindset and you have that mindset of, okay, I'm going to do this. It's just figuring out how it's very easy to work hard and really put in that time and that effort. And that's, that's really the best support that I can give. Yeah, that's great. And I think you're right. Giving yourself, you can, you absolutely need time to mourn, don't you? You have to take that time and say, this sucks. This, this really, really sucks. And it's okay to admit that it sucks. Um, but then the only way to get over that is to give yourself a new challenge, right? Give yourself something to focus on. Uh, and it sounds like that's what you've done and you're trying to make it work the best way you possibly can. It's, it's not ideal <laughs> and you, you, you know that and you accept it. Um, but you're trying to make it work and and that's great. And I, I just think it's fantastic the way you, you guys are able to support each other in this. I think the fact that you met through diving and that's kind of been the, the constant there. And um, it's just great. You guys work so well as a couple in so many different ways. That, that's that's really cool um, and, and really encouraging as well. And just watching you guys on the screen, the way you look at each other and interact. And um, it's really nice. It's, re it's, it's very cool. I wish everyone could see that, um, the way that you guys do that. So, um, so there were, I mean, you've mentioned as well that I think both of your schools now, not only um, ha have you had to go through the, the whole COVID thing, the cancellation of the, um, the trials and all that mess, uh, your schools have cut their diving programs. Uh, now, I, I, for some of the people listening, this won't, they may not understand the significance of this, um, but when it's your university and they cut the program that you lived for, you know, it helped pay your way through college. It's, it's the sport that you love uh, and, and now it's, it's gone. It's just not there anymore. What, what was that like? How did that, how did that make you feel? And obviously it affected for David, it affected your training, you know, for the, the trials. And so how, how's that made you feel? What's that been like? Yeah. Boise state was one of the first programs to cut swimming and diving. So they cut swimming and diving and baseball at the same time. And they said it was a financial decision. They decided with title nine, it had to be a male and a female team going together um, you know, swimming and diving didn't have the best facilities. It's had a lot of coaching changes in the last five years. So I can see where it was an easy, not an easy decision for them to make, but in the grand scheme of things that that was the team that would make the easiest impact for them. And I got the news and I got it through teammates. People started sharing the article that they had made that decision. And 
I had really, really mixed feelings because on the one hand, like you said, that was my opportunity to go to the school that I wanted to continue competing in my sport, to get my education, to, you know, live somewhere else and get a different experience. I lived a thousand miles away from home. Like not a lot of people get to do that and get it paid for. And on the other side, you know, the last year of competition for me was very, very difficult mentally and physically. Like that was the time where I really started breaking down and I started blacking out during practice. And it just, it wasn't a time where I was connected to my life. And so it's very, very, you know, conflicting feelings for me because I'm sad for every other athlete that might've had that opportunity, Mm. but it also can open up for something better when the university does look and say, okay, you know, what team do we bring back? What team do we need reform? What team do we need new coaches? Like that, it makes me hopeful that something better is coming. Um, But overall, like I, I truly feel for all the athletes of all six programs across the country that have cut, including Mm -hmm. David's. Yeah. Um, So uh, the way ASU did things, um, officially, the dive team isn't cut. Yeah, it's, it's still a team. So um, the official press release that ASU put out was that my coach was retiring. Um, obviously, talking to him, that is not what I was told. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is now a head dive coach at Notre Dame. So obviously something they are saying does not line up. Mm-hmm. Um, Fair to say. My teammates were verbally told that the team was cut. Um, but again, nothing on paper, o- nothing to prove. The official press release is that they're going to look for a coach. Um, so obviously, being on that side of things, um, I felt very hurt by the administration. Um, I, I was actually a graduate assistant in the fundraising wing of Sun Devil Athletics, the ASU Athletics, um, and had gotten pretty close to a lot of the administration uh, to the point that, you know, just on a random day, I would go up and chat and say hi and how was it? and. Uh, My graduate thesis was actually even on student athlete participation in community service. And so like the client was the athletics department. Um, So with how they handle all that, like it it felt like getting stabbed in the back. Um, And then on top of that, they didn't, nobody reached out to me, uh, even knowing that I was, I was continuing to train and all that. Um, So you know, I've, I've, I've still got a little bit of chip on my shoulder as far as it goes with ASU athletics. Um, yeah, so. understandably. <laughs> yeah, understandably. Uh, and as you say, I mean, it's, it's across the country, isn't it? That programs are being cut. Uh, and um, which is sad because you do think about the number of people that won't get the experience that you had and whose experience has been tainted. I mean, you, you obviously loved ASU up right up to that point. You had a, you know, a great relationship with them, and um, and and that that's hard. That that hurts. I know. Um, so we are where we are now. 
trials for you, David, are next June, all being well. Um, <laughs> maybe even a vaccine before <laughs> then. Who knows um, the world we'll live in next year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's so many things that I would like to talk to you guys about, but um, I think just in the interest of time, Casey, uh, we've heard a lot about David and uh, his amazing diving stuff. Uh, and the, I mean, I, I'm so impressed about the Olympic trials. I, that's, uh, I'm really pleased for you. And I do really hope that it does happen in 2021 uh, and that you're able to get just the right amount of training in so that on that day, you, uh, you just take it all. Absolutely. Blow everyone out of the water, figuratively. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Casey, you've got a lot going on right now. I know when we chatted a couple of weeks ago, I kind of said to you, I was really intimidated by all of your qualifications. It was like <laughs> a whole page of everything that you are now qualified to do. And uh, you, there's some really interesting things in there. Just really quickly, tell us what your website is. Yeah, absolutely. So it's caseyfitness.com. Um, and everything is Casey Fitness. That's where you can find me. Um, I'm actually interviewing a U.S. national team member on my page uh, about her career and transitioning out and all of that this week. So I'm very excited. Amazing. So uh, it's Casey Fitness. Uh, but you do, as you said, you, you know, you're helping David at the moment and you do the fitness stuff, but you're, uh, it seems to me that your real passion is, I mean, you are passionate about the fitness stuff, but you have another passion with that. Uh, the, the, so tell us a bit about the body image kind of mm -hmm. piece that you like to work on. Absolutely. So I am writing a book right now from athletes to human beings about that athletic transition out because one of the biggest struggles that athletes have, and you know, it's what you work on with future proof, that it's the identity and the purpose of you are your sport, you train, you focus, everything is within that. And your body is the tool that gets you to where you want to be. So when athletes leave and their body changes, their focus changes, their, pur their purpose changes, and they're not training four hours a week, it's very, very difficult to take because most athletes have not been prepared for it. They haven't been, you know, warned, I guess, that your body's going to change. Like you may gain weight, you may lose weight, you're not going to be as strong. Like you're going to be strong mentally, physically but it's not going to look like the way that it did and really helping athletes to acknowledge that and then cope with that. Like you said, it's a grieving process. When you leave the NCAA or high performing athletics at any level, there is a grieving process because you've now lost something, whether you think that you have lost it or not, it's a piece of you that's gone. It's a piece of your identity. It's a piece of your purpose, piece of your time. And so that's really where my passion is, is how do we help athletes to better transition out to being human beings and acknowledging that your body is freaking awesome. No matter if you are ramming into linebackers or you are diving off a diving board, no matter what it is, your body is still freaking awesome. And so that is the purpose of the podcast, of the book, of my coaching um, in health and fitness is really to help athletes know that their life still matters even after competition. Talk just more specifically about the body image and the shame thing. What, what, what do you mean by that? Absolutely. So when you're not training 
four hours a week and a lot of athletes, four hours a day, four hours a week, (laughs) four hours a day, um, you know, your body changes and most athletes don't know how to work out after competition and they get some shame and guilt when people tell you that, oh, to keep that body, you have to keep working out. And that's really, really hard for athletes to take when they don't feel like they're able to work out. It's very, very hard to go work out because when you don't know how to, there's nobody telling you exactly what to do anymore. And you don't think that you need a coach because you've done this for so long, you should be able to do it. And then on the other hand, it's just the motivation isn't there. You know, what am I working towards? I'm not working towards national championships. I'm not working towards Olympics. What is the purpose of working out? So there's a lot of shame in when your body starts to change and especially for women, like we have the eight packs, the chiseled arms the you know, we have that athletic body. And then when it's gone, you know, we have those internal monologues from coaches and family members and friends that are well, well-meaning. They mean like they want us to do well. And I remember hearing that when I was going through like my personal training certification and I was hearing, well, you need to stay in shape so that people know that you're a fitness professional so that people take you seriously. And that really, really hurt. And I stopped training people for a while because I didn't feel worthy of it. I didn't feel that I could actually help someone, even though I had, you know, I have seven years of knowledge of fitness and health and how a body is supposed to move and what is a healthy lifestyle, but I didn't feel worthy to be able to use it. And so that's really where the shame in the body image comes in because those things that we hear throughout athletics, I was talking to an athlete the other day that in their athlete cafeteria, all the food was labeled red, yellow, or green. And they were told to stay away from the red foods because those are bad foods for you. So she still sees mashed potatoes as a red light food and that she shouldn't eat it. And those are just the internal monologues that, you know, they mean well, they think that they're helping us but really, really damages after athletics. And it brings that guilt and shame of what we're eating. The fact that we're not working out because our body needs the recovery. And so that's really what I want to focus on, what I want to change, what I want to help acknowledge and say, no, you are perfect. You are able to eat what you want. You know, life is different. So let's act like it. Yeah. And yeah, you know, when you're competing, depending on your sport, you know, you, you might be going from 5% body fat to 10, competing yeah. at a high level. Um, and then when you retire, you know, it's actually okay to go to 15 or even 20. I gained 30 pounds in the, the first year after I quit because I had so much going on. I didn't work out for that year and I had such guilt. And then I gained this 30 pounds that I was told I didn't deserve a scholarship if I gained it. So it just, it all piles on top of you. And it's really hard to even acknowledge that you're there to start making a change. Yeah. And then are you seeing kind of two kind of opposite or or polar responses to that? So um, obviously even within men, eating disorders are growing, aren't they? So you you then have the response of, oh, well, I'm I'm not really supposed to put on weight. So anorexia or bulimia in men trying to get back down to that size without doing all the training they were doing before, but still trying to stay the same size. Or you get the other extreme, don't you, where they put on a bit of weight and then think, oh, well, hell with it. Um, 
why try anymore? And then you see lots of former athletes, coaches, et cetera, that are just, they just balloon up, don't they? And yeah. so are you seeing that with the people you work with? What, what do you see more, I guess? Absolutely. So specifically to answer your question, the men that I have interviewed for this book that I'm writing, you know, they have some of the same thought patterns and internal monologues that female athletes did. And that surprised me that that true similarity of them still judging their food, still thinking that to, you know, be at a good weight, to be healthy, you have to eat less and work out more. And it's actually really the opposite when you get out of athletics, because your metabolism is adjusting. And the more that we can help that, the more that we can fuel that, the better, but we're not taught that. Nobody's there to tell us that. So that's why I'm here screaming it, like, please eat more. It's okay not to work out. And, you know, men particularly, they want to keep that body. They think they're going to keep that body because they've done all the things to get there. So they think that that's going to continue. And then you lose a lot of your support after you leave athletics. You have all this support. You have a nutritionist. You have a sports psychologist. You have a weight coach. You have a coach. You have, you know, an athletic trainer that supports you in all the decisions that you're making. And then when you leave, you have none of that. And worse, you don't believe that you need it anymore. So you don't seek help. You don't seek a nutritionist. You don't seek a health coach. You don't seek a fitness coach. And that's where the spiral really continues because you think that you have it all. Um, and so that's really, like you said, that's how we get into these problems of self-image and gaining a lot of weight and being really, really ashamed of it because you were an athlete. You weren't supposed to be like that. And so it makes it really, really hard to have those behavior changes. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So just what's, do you have a title for the book? I know you're obviously working on it now. Do you, you have the title? Yes. It is called from athlete to human being, and it is the transition out of high performing athletics. And it does have a release date too. Oh, I'm amazing. so excited to announce that this week, uh, March 18th, 2021. So that's, coming up soon that is coming up soon <laughs> that's really exciting congratulations ah um, thank you can't wait for that we'll definitely get you back on and and we can talk about that when it comes out as well that would be that'd be really exciting so going for the next six months year what are the biggest challenges for you guys what's what's kind of what's on your mind uh well obviously i'm gonna keep training and uh, keep getting ready for Olympic trials. We'll see where that goes. Um, regardless, after you know those competitions are done, I'll be in my career. Um, but I, I, we've, we've set up a good transition out. We actually started a youth diet club together. Oh, uh, so uh, with, with that, I'll be transitioning from being an athlete to being more of a coach. Um, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, no, it's been this year. I, I truly think is a year of crazy opportunities. Like you can make any decision to change your life and nobody will judge you or question it because <laughs> everyone's in the same position. So this year, if in January you had asked us, like if I was going to be writing a book about athletics, if we were going to be starting a youth dive club, if we were going to be doing any of the things that we're doing now, it would have been absolutely not but everything fell into place so perfectly this year for us to say, okay, are we taking this opportunity or not? 
And that's really, you know, how we plan to move forward is just what is the next best decision for one, our life and how we can better grow, but also how we can serve. That's really been my question is how can I better serve the athletic community? How can I better serve these athletes that are struggling? And so that's, that's really my, my guiding factor over the next six months until, until the Olympics really. (laughs) Excellent. And just, uh, just back to the Olympics really quickly, David, for you, what kind of, for you, the mental space that you go into now in preparation for that. So, you know, there are different people like to look at it different ways. So there are some people who would be here now thinking I'm going to, I'm going to win. Of course I'm going to qualify. And that's, that's just what's going to happen. And, and from now, you know, it's still how long, eight months away, whatever. Um, But I'm going to win. Yeah. Uh, Other people would be more like, well, I'm just going to take it a day at a time, see how it goes. What's your mental space and what are your expectations for the trials? How how do you, how do you cope with that? I'm much more on the uh, taking it a day at a time side right now. Uh, There's, there's so much change going on and (laughs) there's, there's so much to try to deal with and all that. Um, I'm, I'm really not trying to put pressure on it. Um, You know, just, just getting to go to Olympic trials and getting to compete at Olympic trials is such a big honor and it's such a big thing to get to participate in that absolutely i'll i'll be happy with that um anything above and beyond that is icing on the cake uh so i i think i'm just gonna try to take the same approach i did to that national qualifier meet and take no pressure to it get to enjoy seeing my friends that i haven't seen you know in a couple years now uh and get to compete in the sport that I love and have trained, you know, over 10 years. And so uh, that's kind of my approach. That's great. Great attitude. Great attitude. And I'm sure the uh, young lady sitting beside you will uh, help keep you uh, focused and grounded all of that at the same time. That's the goal. Some days, (laughs) (laughs) some days I'm not so grounded. David definitely agreed with that. Guys, it has been a huge privilege uh, and a real pleasure chatting to you. And I wish we could just do this for the next few hours. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, no, it's definitely my pleasure. And I look forward to to staying in touch. Uh, We look forward to the release date of the book, uh, updates on training, and we will definitely uh, hear what happens at those trials come June. Have a great afternoon, guys. Enjoy the sunshine in Arizona, and I will try not to drown in the English rain. (laughs) (laughs) Great talking. Thank you so much. Cheers, guys. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Casey and David. Be sure to check out David's qualification progress at the trials next June. Also, keep an eye out for Casey's book release in March. And you can find out more about the great work she's doing at FromAthleteToHumanBeing.com. If you're involved in sport at any level, check out Future Proof Sports Consulting to see if there's any way that we can support you, your team, or your club to perform at its best and prepare for the future. You can find us at Future-ProofSC.com. And remember, it's never too soon 
to start preparing for the future. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do and leave us a five-star review. Our next episode will be out next week. In the meantime, celebrate the good times, but never forget to sing when you're losing.